Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, joined by Melissa Griffith. Melissa, how are you this fine week? I am doing good. Excited for our guest who you have not introduced yet, so I'm going to turn it back to you. Awesome. Yeah, so our guest, we're very excited to have Terry Givens, who is the founder of the Center for Higher Education Leadership, Dr. Terry Givens, uh, who has a storied background and uh, quite a few credentials and experiences to share with us. Terry, uh, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks so much, Michael and Melissa. It's really great to be here. And I am also a political scientist. Don't yes. forget that. Yes. <laughs> and, and a podcaster. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I have a I'm a, a definitely a woman of many talents. Yeah, and you're an author of an upcoming book called uh, Radical Empathy, which we definitely want to dig into as part of our conversation today. But I thought maybe just to, to start off, I'd like to bring guests in and let them tell us their origin story, what got you to where you are now in your career. And for someone with as varied and a you know, really uh, interesting background, I'd love to, to hear in your own words, what has been your your educational pathway and your career pathway that got you to where you are today. All right. Thanks so much, Michael and Melissa as well. So I am uh, the youngest of seven children. I grew up in Spokane, wow. Washington, and my father was in the military. So I'm actually the first person in my family to finish college. I had a couple siblings who actually went to college but didn't finish. And I was always very into school. I was that kid who would leave after school ended in elementary school, that, that last day of, of the uh, semester, and I'd be crying on the way home. <laughs> so, because I hated to first school to be ending. So I've always been very into school. I love reading. And, you know, even, you know, I remember I would spend a ton of time in the library. And being the youngest, my sisters actually taught me to read fairly early. So I think that made a huge difference in my education is that I, I learned to read early on. I ended up going to Gonzaga Prep School. My family's actually Catholic. And Gonzaga is a, a Catholic Jesuit uh, high school in Spokane, Washington. And that really changed my life. I'd gone to public school up through my freshman year of high school. And going to this prep school, I got onto a track of taking honors classes. And, and my advisors there were really proactive in making me think about you know, going to a really good college. I mean, probably if I had stayed in public school, I would have, not, not that's anything wrong with it, I would have gone to University of Washington. That's right. just the path I was on. But because I had these great advisors and, you know, I, I was also on the track team. So one of the, my counselors made sure he talked to the track coach at Stanford, which mm -hmm. got them looking at me as well. So, and then I had a friend who went to Stanford and so she really loved it. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to Stanford. <laughs> Being first generation, I didn't really know much about the uh, process of uh, applying to college. So I only applied to two schools, Stanford and University of Oregon. <laughs> mm, wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So luckily I got into Stanford and that was such a life-changing thing for me. And I have to say, I had some of the best mentors who are still my friends to this day. I had a, a resident assistant in my dorm and my advising associate, which was a peer advisor, they just really took me under their wing. And then we had a resident fellow who was a professor in the dorm. You know, he and his family took me under their wing. And mm -hmm. it just made such a huge difference in having that personal touch. 
And so I actually did pretty well in school. I ran track my first two years and realized I was never going to make it to the Olympics like some of my teammates. So I decided to focus on school instead. Actually, I put myself in the same league as Cory Booker because he quit football at Stanford after a couple of years. There you go. Yeah. You got to know what you have and what you don't have. So I think you made an excellent choice. Given my trajectory in life, (laughs) I I definitely made a good choice. So, but you know, I really didn't know anything about what it meant to be a professor and, and all that. And actually, after four years at Stanford, I was kind of burnt out because I was working my way to, uh, working my way through. I didn't have a track scholarship. I had a more of a need-based and merit-based scholarship. So I got out and worked for six years and then decided to go back to graduate school and got into UCLA and, again, had some amazing mentors who helped me through um, that whole process of becoming a a professor and, and got my first job at University of Washington. So I did end up at University of Washington. Eventually. There you go. <laughs> and then I uh, was there for three years, went on to University of Texas at Austin, you know, career took off, became a, a center director, vice provost, all kinds of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, finished my academic career at uh, Menlo College and right. decided to leave for a variety of reasons, which we can get into later. Yeah. And then you founded... <laughs> um... The Center for Higher Education uh, Leadership, uh, yeah. yes, uh, a year ago. Right, right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Center for Higher Education Leadership? Yeah, so the reason I started it, which is you know, what, what I was alluding to earlier, is when I became a vice provost at UT Austin, I um, realized I didn't know anything about accreditation, mm-hmm. assessment, managing 70 people, <laughs> you know, all of those things. And it was like drinking from a fire hose. And again, you know, I, I was able to rely on the people around me to get through all of that. I even had to fire somebody, you know, like yep. in my first year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just, yeah. you know, and I look back now and I'm like, oh my God, I could have messed that up so badly yeah. if I had taken any missteps. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about it for many years, you know, why don't we have an easy way to learn how, you know, to go from being a faculty member to being an administrator. And there were lots of, you know, face-to-face programs you could, no, not lots, a few face-to-face programs you could do through Harvard or through some of these other organizations. I did one through ACE, but it didn't really give me the nitty gritty of, you know, what does it mean to go through an accreditation process? Mm -hmm. I mean, those things are so dang complicated. And so I decided I would start this centers to help faculty in particular, but even graduate students don't learn this stuff, right? Right, They don't even learn how to make the transition from grad student to faculty. So Mm -hmm. we've been reaching out not only to faculty and uh, administrators, but also graduate students and saying, hey, here's some information that you can use uh, to be a better faculty member and to be a better administrator. Mm -hmm. And it's really critical. Even before COVID, I was saying we're in the middle of a crisis in higher ed. Mm-hmm. because we're not innovative enough, we're not changing fast enough, we're not mm-hmm. student-centered enough, and we've got a, a subset of faculty adjuncts who are struggling right. to make ends meet, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. it just blows yeah. my mind that we have, you know, th- these amazing institutions of higher education that have these, you know, we, we've gone to this fleet of, of you know, uh, adjuncts who we don't pay reasonably. And, you know, I was guilty when I was the provost at Menlo College, I was guilty of that myself. So I'm really trying to figure out how through um, education and helping these people become better leaders, can we change the culture of higher ed? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a really big thing to take on. You can tell just from the way I'm talking about, I feel incredibly passionate about the fact that we have to make these changes. There's hardly any industry in this country that has not 
made a shift that is trying to take advantage of innovations. You bring up an interesting point that I want to touch on. You hear in higher education that the cost of higher education is also going up, right? And at the same Mm -hmm. time, you're you're saying that we're we're clearly not paying the the faculty what they need. What is where where is the money going? Is is my first question. And what can we do to to change that directly? From your perspective, what is it that we can do to address this problem though? Because it is too costly and the return is not very there, and still we're not paying the people who are, are trying to educate our uh, students. Well, the first step is to start looking at it from a student-centered perspective, right? And that means that what are students coming to college for? The marketing of higher ed has focused on, oh, look at all these great amenities. We have. And, and you hear a lot of criticism of the lazy rivers. First places that get cut. I'm hearing this from my friends who are faculty. We're cutting benefits and faculty salaries. Unless I see the administration taking yeah. similar cuts, that's, that's a problem. So mm-hmm. I'm not a firm believer that there's a ton of bloat in most institutions. Part of the increasing costs is, is we're overregulated, and that's hard for some people yeah. to hear. I, I don't want to see us move to a situation where we're not regulating for-profit institutions, but frankly, I can tell you, at Menlo College, we were overregulated. We had the accreditors coming in and saying, you have to do this, this, and this. Even for our business college accreditor, we had to pay the faculty a certain salary. There's all these things we had to do. And the reality is it, it tends to stifle innovation because there's all these different things you have to do. So first of all, we need to ease up on the regulation and tell institutions, okay, do what you need to do. And secondly, a lot of the money tends not, like I said, the first place to get cut is, is salaries because that's the easiest place to cut. Mm-hmm. So instead of cutting to faculty salaries, we need to be looking at other areas where we can make cuts because um, unfortunately that's where we are. You know, and yeah. we, were that, we were there when I was at University of Texas you know, in, in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. And even when I left University of Washington in 2003, we were going through a round of budget cuts. And so the number one thing we can do to improve higher education is to invest in it. And I mean pub- investing in public institutions because everybody says, oh, defund the police. Well, guess what? We've been defunding public education for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can yes. look at the percentage of what the state is paying into these institutions, and it's a straight downward line. And you're, you're getting me on my I apologize. But I mean, taxes, pay your damn taxes, people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want an edge, you know, I'm sorry, I'm right here in Silicon Valley. And, you know, I'm right next door to Atherton, yeah. one of the most expensive places in the country. And if these people pay their taxes, we'd have no problem paying for both K through 12 and higher ed. Mm-hmm. But we've seen tax cut after tax cut after tax cut. And, you know, the first place that, uh, well, because it's one of the biggest budget items, higher ed is the one, one of the places that's going to get cut, and then K through 12. Yeah. And so it, it's extremely frustrating to me as somebody who wants to pay more. I, I would gladly pay more taxes mm-hmm. in order to make sure that both higher ed and K through 12 are getting the resources they need. And it drives me crazy when people say you can't throw money at the, the problem. Right, right, yes, right. you can. Yeah, you can yeah. Lots and lots and lots of money at this problem. So right, right. the biggest thing we need to do to reduce the cost is put more taxes into this. Yeah, that's interesting. And and also, you know, I, I do want to get back to the defund the police and fund. What would you fund in lieu of funding the police as much as they're funded, I think is an interesting topic in light of everything uh, that's been going on in the last few months. Before we get there, I just wanted to make sure folks know that you are also a podcaster, right? So, so we like to give other podcasters their shine as well. So what's what's the name of your podcast? 
It's called the Higher Education Leadership Podcast, and we're available on all the different major platforms, um, Apple and, and uh, Google Podcasts, et cetera. So just look for Higher Education Leadership Podcast. Awesome. I think we are going to want to pivot more into radical empathy. How do you train and develop folks to be uh, empathetic and inclusive? I, I think of diversity and inclusion skills as new economy skills. If you don't have them, you need to learn how to get there, particularly in, in this day and age. But before we go there, I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on the importance of teaching, because I think that was another, mm -hmm. another topic that we did discuss a bit when we were prepping. So can you pick yeah. up a little more on that? So yeah, teaching is, is really critical. And, and having faculty that know how to teach is really critical. I, I did a column in Inside Higher Ed for years, and this was one of my biggest pet peeves, is that you go through graduate school, and you might be a TA for a class, a teaching assistant or something, but it's so funny. I did um, a little survey on Twitter the other day just to see who knew what instructional design was. Mm. And out of 150 responses, 70% didn't know what instructional design is. Mm. Mm. And these are all faculty, right? Yeah, yeah. And grad students. And I have to be honest, I didn't know what instructional design was until a few years ago. Right, right. I would write about the fact that you go through graduate school, you don't learn how to teach. I remember my own experience in this. I started at University of Washington. I went through faculty orientation. They said, oh, here's this res these resources. They gave us a bunch of books on active learning and all that. And I'm like, okay. So I, I did every workshop I could on how to teach. And I felt like I was thrown into the classroom using somebody else's syllabus because you know, I hadn't developed my own syllabus yet. Right. I mean, almost every major... A college campus has a school of education right. and there's no cross-pollination between them and the graduate students and other mm -hmm. programs mm -hmm. and so why couldn't we have a class taught by the school of education for every grad student on campus who wants to be a teacher to learn about pedagogy mm -hmm. and instructional design yeah. mm -hmm. and all of these things this is the other big problem with higher ed right we were when we were talking before about you know the costs and everything we have to decide that higher ed is going to be a place of teaching and learning mm -hmm. <laughs> first of all yeah. and and there and don't get me wrong there are yeah. many 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 great institutions out there that do this really well mm -hmm. but i can tell you just from my experiences and especially in what we call the research one institutions it's not happening a whole lot and believe me i'm a researcher i still do research <laughs> writing a book right you know i just finished the, the radical empathy and i'm doing another book that's more of a research oriented book on the roots of racism mm -hmm. But we have to decide that we're going to put resources and give faculty the time they need to do teaching mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah. that should be our focus. And that's why I left, when I left UT Austin, I wanted to go to a place like Menlo College that I knew would focus more on teaching because right. I firmly believe in it. And, I, and it's more student-centered and there's a lot more we could have done to, to be even more student-centered. And, and I'm sure they'll be doing more of that going forward. But it, it's, it's like this radical concept yeah. in higher ed that we're going to focus yeah. on teaching and being student-centered. Student and you'll hear a lot of discussion about student success. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's all about empowering the faculty to be good yeah. teachers. Yeah. And it's even the, your point about adjuncts before, too. A lot of the teaching gets pushed down to the adjuncts or the, the teaching right. assistants. And then a lot of the research is treated as the, the high status. If you want to be on a tenure track, if you want to be advancing in your academic career, it's more mm -hmm. about the research side. And I guess in some ways, maybe that does connect to the pivot to the Center for uh, Higher Education right. Leadership, yeah. because yep. that's very much about teaching things that you wouldn't otherwise Learn in graduate right? school. Yeah. Can you give us a, a high-level summary of what Radical Empathy is about? And Melissa and I have been 
leaning into having more uh, awkward conversations about race. So feel free to at least make me feel awkward. I'm offering my, <laughs> my own awkwardness to the show. Well, uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me start by saying why I, I focused on radical empathy and I'll, I'll show off my own nerdiness, which is I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Nice. And one of my absolute favorite Star Trek episodes is the one about the empath. Mm -hmm. And it's this woman they find on an alien planet who not only can feel what other people feel, but she actually takes on physically yeah. what other people feel. Mm -hmm. um, so I was oh, always wow. enamored of that. And I mm -hmm. just thought it was a great idea. And, mm -hmm. and so I, I I've always kind of been interested in this idea of empathy. So as I've been kind of going through my own journey to understand the way I was raised, I was raised in Spokane, Washington. My parents wanted us to to basically be assimilated into white culture. <laughs> they thought that was the best way for us to be able to succeed in life. We had a few, you know, black families we interacted with from the military, but other than that, most of my parents' friends were white. And But actually, it, what's interesting is I look back on it now, and I, when I was in elementary school, I had, my friends were Japanese, Chinese, Hispanic, and, and white, mm -hmm. as well as black. Mm -hmm. And so I had a yeah. wide range of friends, but still, the impression I was getting from my parents, and I, I write about this in the book, is that it was better to be part of the white world. Mm -hmm. So I talk about this concept of, of an internalized oppression. Mm -hmm. And so for me, radical empathy means, you know, I, I have a six step process, which we can talk about, but the first step was my willingness to be vulnerable and mm -hmm. my willingness to look at my own family history and understand, you know, the reasons for why my parents did the things they did and understanding the, the, con the context of my own life before I could then turn around and say, how can I understand the experiences of other people's unless mm -hmm. I start by understanding my own. Mm -hmm. So to me, radical empathy, it's a six step process because it's not something you can just say, hey, you know, I'm gonna flip a switch and all of a sudden I'm gonna understand the experiences of other people. Right, you know, it's right. a lot of work mm -hmm. and believe me, you know, I, I having written a whole book about it, you know, it really over the last few years forced me to, you know, go back and talk to my, you know, since I'm the youngest of seven, you know, I've sat and talked with my siblings about where, where the family lived over the years and what mm -hmm. it was like being in the military. I found this amazing picture of my dad when he went through a non-commissioned officer school. And, you know, typically, and I had to do a lot of research about this, you know, because when you, when you're living it, it just seems normal. This is just the way things are. But when you start to look back at it and dig into those things, it's like, oh, my dad probably should have gone to NCO school a few years after he got into the military, not when he'd already been in for 12 years you right, know, right, or 15 right. yeah. years. And, and then you see this picture of him graduating from NCO school and he's the, you know, there's like 20, 30 guys. He's the only black guy, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I was just like, Oh my God, what, you know, and I have, unfortunately he passed away in 2001, but mm -hmm. yeah, I've never had the chance to talk to him about it. And actually I hadn't, I never saw that picture until after my mom died mm -hmm. a, a few years ago and mm -hmm. we started going through all their, their paperwork and I'm just like, yeah, Oh yeah. my God, you know, how, what kind of, ex you know, so I had to yeah. start having empathy for my parents mm -hmm. and understanding that, you know, because I, I had always had this kind of anger that, you know, well, I, I grew up in Spokane and didn't know my family that was in Louisiana and in mm -hmm. Los Angeles and in, in Pennsylvania. But now I have much more compassion for my parents and the way they raised us because I have some a better understanding of what they lived through 
and how that impacted me. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, they were sort of right. You know, mm -hmm. assimilation is kind of has helped me throughout life. And but on the other hand, that doesn't mean that I can't embrace. You know, that my my broader. I've, I've gotten to know my broader family. I've done a ton of work. I, I'm a family genealogist. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I, and so a, another thing that probably impacted me really deeply was I, I had a friend who was at University of Alabama who invited me out there to do a talk. And so I decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to Georgia first and stop at Emory. And I have a niece who's at Emory. And I went out and gave a talk at uh, University of Georgia and then drove over to Alabama. But I did kind of the civil rights tour, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, some of this was just like, a little shocking, you know, you're on the University of Georgia campus and there's all these Civil War plaques and stuff mm -hmm. and you, you don't realize, oh my God, there were battles right. on these campuses. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, And, you know, it's crazy. And then I saw Martin Luther, the, his center and where he was born and raised and all that and, mm -hmm. and the, the, the church. Uh, and then you go to Montgomery and, and uh, Birmingham and, and just all these amazing sites. And, 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 but the most impressive thing was going to Montgomery, Alabama to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Mm -hmm otherwise known as the lynching memorial. Mm. And I just went there because, you know, my friend was going to take me there. I knew it would be mean, very meaningful, but I found the name of a distant family member there. Wow. Wow. And it was just like, oh my God, my mother's maiden name is Steli. And mm. Julian Steli was the, one of those pillars there for uh, St. Landry Parish, which is where Opelousas, Louisiana is, which my mom uh, was born and raised. And wow. so then I started doing more digging. But anyway, I mean, so all of this kind of led up to this overwhelming sense of, of you know, my, my family's history, my history, mm -hmm. and how having empathy for my parents, for my, and especially for myself, mm -hmm. was so critical to having that broader perspective that then I became much more grounded in who I am because when you're disconnected from your culture and your family, there's a sense of just being detached from so many different things. And mm -hmm. so I had to create that attachment mm -hmm. and understand, first of all, why I didn't have that connection and then develop those connections and then um, become more grounded in who I am. So yeah. the, the first step of radical empathy is willingness to be vulnerable, which was mm -hmm. is for me is incredibly difficult, yeah. <laughs> but I, I've, I've gotten good, pretty good at it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, becoming grounded in who you are. And then the third step is opening yourself to the experience of others. Mm -hmm. So knowing what I had to go through in order to kind of get to this point of feeling comfortable with myself, mm -hmm. I can then turn around and say, okay, we all have to kind of make that journey if we're mm -hmm. willing mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm going to open myself to your experiences that I may. And so one of the first things I do when I do a workshop around this is I have some, you know, even if you know people around you. So actually I'm going to do this and we're going to do a little something with you and Melissa Nice. right now. So Melissa and Michael, you each have to tell each other something, nothing too crazy, but something that you think the other doesn't know about you. Mm. And we know each wow. other. We know each other. Pretty we have well. known each other for a really long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's so, interesting. Yeah. Let, let me, let me, let me think about this. Something that Mike doesn't know about me. Yes. Uh, I'm actually struggling to think of something. Something from childhood. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking. Because did you know? Cause you, you knew I was in Grenada during the invasion. Did you know that? I did not know that. When the, yeah. There you I, go. I was. Yeah. yeah. There you go. 
Okay, we've done it. We've made it. <laughs> well, that was harder than expected, but yes, well done, well done, yeah. You win the game. No, but yeah. see, the idea there is to get you digging a little deeper, right? Yeah. So even though it was hard for you, Melissa, right, you were able to dig yeah. down and find yeah. something mm -hmm. that he didn't know about you. Mm -hmm. And and it's usually, you know, when you're in a business setting, people don't necessarily, the idea is to get people past kind of those initial, yeah. you know, Hey, you know, I know you like this and that. It's it's like what's something that you know? And and, and if I was doing this in a workshop, I'd ask you to dip. You know, yeah. That actually being in Grenada for the invasion is, is yeah. yeah. Pretty the awesome. the fact that I call it invasion <laughs> and not um yes. the, in, the liberation is is should <laughs> should tell you all that you need to know about it. <laughs> exactly. And so learning those kinds of things about each other it allows it's 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 it's. it's basically practicing empathy. So that's the step mm -hmm. four, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so step four is practicing empathy. And that's the kind of thing I encourage people to do. Mm -hmm. You know, just go up, if somebody you, you know, or, or even if it's somebody you don't know very well, just ask them to tell you something that, you know, you might not know that they, mm -hmm. they would like you to know. You know, it doesn't yeah, yeah. have to be some, you know, soul bearing necessarily. But because I did this in a workshop with a, a, a group I was working with, and, and it was amazing. It, it was like these people had never talked to each other before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it was just very eye-opening. So, and, so and then, the, well, yeah. and then just real quick, that that does kind of speak to the, the idea of psychological safety too, right? The more mm -hmm. that people feel comfortable, feel like they can be vulnerable around others, mm -hmm. is is both it encourages psychological safety. So, if you can be a if you can assume the leadership role of I'm going to make myself vulnerable first, mm -hmm. that is very trust building. To begin with, it also requires, to your point, I think you have to forgive yourself for your flaws. You have to understand mm -hmm. that nobody's perfect, yourself included. But then I also think like as more on the leadership angle, where I know you have a lot of experience teaching that, it's almost an inversion of the traditional understanding of leadership where Absolutely. I have to put my best self forward and always appear as though I have complete. Yeah, because one of the things I've learned as a leader myself is, you know, by making myself vulnerable to my team and showing that I understand my own flaws and, and yeah. vulnerabilities, it just, you know, it creates an, a, a, a sense of trust mm -hmm. and we're, we're much more likely to be able to engage in a way that is much more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I've tried to practice throughout my career, even mm -hmm. before I, I started this whole process, is to allow myself to say, and that's one thing, you know, yeah. you see all these statements coming out from university presidents and CEOs and all that. And the one thing I, I've, I've said about this is that if you do not acknowledge your own errors yes. of omissions, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. then nobody's going to believe your statement. If you mm -hmm. can't say, we have made mistakes in the past. I mm -hmm. personally have made mistakes in the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm not saying this is true just for, you know, these white CEOs and stuff. Every single one of us have made mistakes in the past. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. and, and if we can't own up to that, then you're just not going to have any credibility with, especially, you know, I'm seeing students, you know, pushing back on these statements that, that institutions are making. And it's like, wait a second. I can tell you from my own personal experience, there've been yeah. situations I've been in here where it was not, you know, appropriate or I've been discriminated against. And if you can't acknowledge that, if you're just, just oh, we're wonderful and yep. we're going to be proactive. It's like, no, you have to acknowledge what people have been through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've said this every time I've had this conversation, right? Like if anyone calls you out on your flaws, be genuine about it and you've made mistakes. That is the only thing you can say as a company. I find when you look at the responses that companies have when, when someone calls them out, it's always the boiler PR message. We are an inclusive company. No, this person has said they've had a bad experience with you. 
they are they are putting it out there your only job is to apologize and to do better and to try to do better and i don't know why that's so hard for so many companies to do because that's all we that's all we can ever ask i think as a society is to learn from our mistakes because i can tell you we're going to keep making them i'm going to keep making them mm -hmm. i really i'm very i'm looking forward to your book first of all i yeah. think this book is going to be game changing just so you know and i'm very well, excited it's a perfect segue into that whole yeah. idea of practicing empathy right mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. as leaders we have to practice empathy on a regular basis and mm -hmm. then and then take action and that's yeah. what most people who are responding to these statements are yeah. saying don't just give me a statement i want to see actions mm -hmm. I, you know my my mantra yeah. is you know all these especially you know i'm i'm right in the middle of silicon valley where the, there's all these venture capitalists and we know that black um, entrepreneurs only get 1% of VC capital and black mm -hmm. women are 0.006% of mm -hmm. that. So um, a, a call out to all VCs and investors. I am a C Corp, Center for Higher Education Leadership. You know, give me a call. We, yeah. we want your investment. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but, but that's my point you know, is, is that we need to take action, not just say, oh, I'm going to support black businesses and, and no, show us the money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, that that's what's got to happen. And then, yeah, the, the final step is creating change and building trust. Mm -hmm. And so by taking action, you recreate change. And by, you know, taking action and creating change, you're going to build trust, right? Yeah. If you can show that you're actually going to take the necessary steps to make people feel included, to make sure that they, they can get the, re you know, when you come down to it, Ibram Kendi likes to say it's all about policy, which I agree completely, but because the policy changes will lead to the increasing resources. Mm -hmm. But I also think until we get to that point, changing policy, I'm a political scientist, so I know very well how hard it is to change policy. Right. You can change policies pretty easily within companies within institutions but even in higher ed it's hard to change policies to be honest mm -hmm. again it, some of it comes back to that over regulation mm -hmm. but the, the big issue is you know what kind of resources what kind of money are we going to put into it because in this country especially the bottom line is what kind of money and other resources you know treasure our country's treasure are we going to put into solving these problems because right. that's you know the bottom line and that also ties to a long history of an unequal allocation of that wealth, right? Which is a long, a long conversation for us to, to dive into at, at the appropriate time. So the thing I wanted to understand a little more from you, uh, Terry, is, you know, Melissa and I have talked in the past about talking about race, like some of the things, the two defense mechanisms we talked about the most were yeah. denial and avoidance. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's been leaning into this space and out there as a leader, out there doing workshops and talking to people, trying to get people to elevate their understanding. How do you break through? Uh, how do you, what are your experiences with, you know, people who are just saying, I'm, I'm, I, I just don't want to talk about it or, uh, or, or yeah, or I'm just, yeah. you know, just avoiding it entirely. Yeah. Well, you know, I, one of the more effective ways of doing this is telling stories, which is why my book really focuses on telling stories. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of a balance between, you know, telling my story, telling some other stories, but providing data. Mm -hmm. And so I see it as a three-step process, really, mm -hmm. is you can kind of disarm people by, you know, just telling about yourself. It's like, I'm not going to make you talk about race. I'm just going to talk about my life experiences. Yeah. You know, I can tell the story of growing up in Spokane, you know, black and Catholic in Spokane, Washington. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> um, that's a whole nother book. Yeah. But, but, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because 
you know, the, the reason people put up defense mechanisms is because they, they think you're going to try to make them feel guilty. The reason I wrote the book the way I did is because I was like, I can't go and say, you need to do this. I can't walk into a workshop and say, yeah. do this, 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 and this. Right. But no, this is the work I have had to do. Let mm -hmm. me explain to you how I have gotten to this point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, I'm an African-American woman, but I have bias. The way I like to phrase it is we all grew up in the sea of white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. None yes. of us can get out of it. We're th this is the, the community and the country and the culture we live in. Mm -hmm. Every way you look at it, it's designed, you know, my sister even who recently got ill, you know, the doctors just assumed she had COVID. And, you know, they, they did three tests that were negative, but they never looked, you know, they gave her, gave her a flu test or anything else. Well, it turns mm. out she had something else called valley fever. Mm. And for African-Americans, it's something that can be really bad. If for some reason they were, and, you know, the final, after six doctors, <laughs> yeah. know, she finally got to that point. And to me, that's a sign that these doctors were not looking at the fact that, you know, for, you know, she was just telling me this morning, 25% of, pe of people who get pneumonia in Arizona have valley fever, mm. not COVID. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. you know, there, there's all these indicators out there. And so unless doctors become aware, and actually I have a whole chapter on the medical industry and, mm. and how mm. it impacts people of color and black mm. people in particular, because unless we get doctors to, to take a step back. And so I, I tell the stories, right? you know, of how my parents' lives were impacted and, mm -hmm. and how my life has been impacted, you know, personally yeah. by yeah, the yeah. fact that, and, and I have a friend who's come up with a tool where doctors just have to be forced, you know, as they're doing an exam to think about race. Yeah. So, so we mm -hmm. don't want to not think about race because there are things because of our long history of racism impact me differently than they might impact you, Michael, or my right, husband, right. you know, right, or, or, right. you know. So, so it's not that, you particularly are racist is that we all live in yeah. this, this culture. I mean, can you believe that uh, something like 40% of medical students will say that black people don't feel pain the same way that white people do because wow. we have thicker wow. skin. Mm. Can you believe Seriously? that? I mean, th yeah. these, did they these graduate? Are, did they graduate? They, they graduate this way. They shouldn't graduate. They shouldn't yeah. graduate. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that should be a question on the, on the exam. Yeah, I know. I, wrong, automatic so disqualifier. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because I've been, you know, because I did this whole chapter on, on you know, mm. racism and medicine and so on. Uh, and actually, the whole reason that, I mean, you know, I start off the book by, you know, talking about my dad died of a heart attack in 2001. And that's the first time I ever looked at the racial bias or the racial differences in things like heart disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically just being a black man is a risk factor for heart disease. Right, right. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. And so that was my first foray into it. But anyway, right. I mean, I've, I've gone far afield from your question. Yeah. No, Michael, it's, but, it's a great answer. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and the related thought is like, you know, in light of COVID, in light of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and George Floyd and Ahmed Aubrey and Brianna Taylor and everything that's been going on this year, do you think there's there's an opening now for us to take advantage of? That that's part of why like we've shifted for whatever reason to focus on you know we're a trend spotting show, so we're able to talk about this as a trend, which is great. Would have been great if we been doing it more in advance of this, but it does feel yeah. like there is a moment in time right mm -hmm. now that people are recognizing and there's an opportunity to be opportunistic about that. I'd, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that. Absolutely. We are living in a, you know, a, a, an important inflection point in history. 
And I'm not sure, you know, I've read a lot of stuff. We're not going to know exactly why this happened for years. You know, all my friends who are, who are out there doing political scientists are going to be doing this research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my impression living in the moment is that it's, it's the confluence of these things. It's the fact that people have seen all of, you know, with Trump and, you know, many of his supporters yeah. just so blatantly racist. Mm -hmm. And then video, social media. You know, a friend of mine was saying, oh, we just need to get off of social media. I'm like, no, social media is the reason why people are suddenly understanding what's happening. We would not have seen that eight minutes and 46 yeah. seconds unless we had social media. So, no, I don't want to get off social media. I find it incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to avoid the toxic parts. Of it. Yeah, yeah. And then and then the third point is that we've all been, you know, not all of us, but most of us have been sheltering in place. Mm -hmm. And so that means we're much more aware. We're on social media more. We're mm -hmm. watching the news. You know, I mean, I certainly started to watch the news more because of, you know, I want to keep up with what's the latest and should I wear a mask? Should I right. not? And obviously right. you should wear a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I have to say that. It's this interesting confluence of events, and it's almost like the Black Lives Matter movement was sitting there waiting for this. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so once that happened, I mean, I'm, I walk around my neighborhood now, and every other house has a Black Lives Matter. So, and let me tell you, there's not a whole, I mean, there's a handful of people in my neighborhood who are Black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, we had a little march the other day, about 500 people showed up just from, mm -hmm. you know, this little neighborhood. It was a children's mm -hmm. march. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it, I, mean, I mean, it's fantastic. But, you, but also, I hope people understand for that for those of us that have been following this you know, or been part of this all our lives, it's almost frustrating, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, th it didn't happen with Rodney King. It didn't happen with, you know, all these other now the posters go up, you know, say their the names, names and there's yeah. the long yeah. list and, and it's still happening every day. You know, I right. mean, uh, it's traumatizing for us who, mm -hmm. you know, have to worry. I have two boys who are 16 and 19, you know, I mm -hmm. have to worry about my sons. So it's, mm -hmm. it's traumatizing in a sense too. And I think what's happening is now p empathy is happening, right? Mm -hmm. People are understanding our trauma of having to go through all of these different, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a public, I hate to say it, but in some ways these are like public executions. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing people die on camera mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> at the hands of authorities. Right. Yeah. So, and do, then, yeah. Do, do you think this uh, is going to bring about real change though? Cause this is the question I keep asking, right? Myself on a daily basis. It seems like, it seems different, but I'm it sure is. the civil rights seemed different at the time and, and, and all the things have seemed different. So where, where do you see us like a year from now or two years from now on this movement? Well, a lot's going to depend on November. And the most important thing we have to do is vote. So if, you know, if this momentum carries through November and we do see a change, then I do think we'll see some significant yeah. change going forward. <laughs> I will just put a plug out there, though, not just vote for the president, but vote yes. in your local elections and vote in, in the Senate and in the Congress, because the president is one man, right? And frankly, it has to go all the way down to the school board. Yes. You know, yes. every single position, actually, and I just recently, I'm starting to get involved more in, in local politics, mm -hmm. um, yes. you know, just at kind of the commission level, but still get active if you can, run for office if you can, and yeah. vote, vote, vote every single, you know, learn, you know, make sure you read your, your ballot before you, yes. you know, vote, vote for the right people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I know we're getting close to time. I, I, I do really like the idea of tying the, the defund the police conversation to 
where do you where do we find the funding yeah. for education because it's more a positive conversation because I'd, I'd actually be concerned if you defund the police and then we don't fund anything else with those mm -hmm. dollars I think that's actually uh, problematic I'd love to get any any thoughts you might have on that and then we typically ask our guests you know what trends are you tracking in the world uh, today mm -hmm. uh, I think we talked about a lot of them but also if there's anything else you yeah. wanted to conclude with but 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 thanks very much for for joining us really really enjoyed the conversation we'd love to have you back more in the future but uh, I love any, that too any <laughs> thoughts on on you know any of this yeah so first defunding so that it's happening like the schools in San Jose and, and I think Oakland have already agreed that they're going to take the police off their campuses so basically you know the, the idea is you take that funding because you don't need police on every call, right? You need social workers, you need people who have counseling skills, you know, there, there's so many different ways to approach this and, and there's lots of proposals out there. So it's not, it's not just defund. It's like redirect. I mean, maybe we should be saying redirect, yeah, um, yeah. yeah redirect the money to in, in what, because the, the police are, are trained to respond to, to crime. Right. right? And so their, you know, their mindset is, oh, you know, I have to go to this call, it, it, you know, yeah. and, and not every, you know, believe me, I know that there are really good sure. policemen out there who yeah. don't do that, who are trained better, but, you know, in, in many instances, I mean, we see this in the, the school to prison pipeline, you know, mm -hmm. the, by adding police in the schools, it's just meant that we're, we're treating students like criminals. Right, right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one. So I'll, I'll leave that there. There, we, Invite yeah. me back. We'll come back and talk about that one. That'll be a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I do want to talk more about the school funding issue in particular. Yeah, but sure. as far as trends, I, I, I think, you know, I already mentioned it and I'll, I'll just emphasize becoming more student centered mm. is going to be the most important thing we can do in higher ed as a trend. And that, that incorporates so many different things that are happening in, around innovation, you know, ed tech, you know, pedagogy, all of that. So mm -hmm. being student centered you know, makes you think about things in a different way. And as a faculty member, as an administrator, and where we put our resources. Mm -hmm. Awesome stuff. Yeah. Uh, really wonderful conversation. If you loved getting some of Terry's uh, thoughts today, you can listen to her podcast. Hopefully we'll get her back on again soon. You can also Google Terry Gibbons. You get results, you know, people can... Yes find out uh, more about Terry. Melissa, thanks as always. Any, any concluding thoughts, perspectives from you? This was a good conversation. And Terry, definitely want to keep having the conversation with you about yeah. all, all the topics, because I think we just scratched the surface on so many things. Yes, we did. Awesome. <laughs> thanks again for listening. We'll be back again soon on Trending in Education.